In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We're very used to contemplating the life of Jesus in the scripture in an effort to find in Jesus' face, in his actions, in his reactions to what others do and say, a revelation of God the Father's love. In Jesus, we see God's invisible love made visible. He comes into the world to reveal this love to us. But this evening in our, in our prayer, I want us to try to go deeper in this by wrestling a little bit with a part of Jesus' reactions and actions in the Gospel that maybe are a little bit harder to understand. And to do that, I think we need to start off by reminding ourselves that yes, Jesus comes to reveal the love of the Father. He is the visible expression and manifestation of that love. But this world that he comes into is not a vacuum. It's not empty. There is opposition. The prologue of St. John's Gospel and very solemn and poetic words expresses this, that Jesus was the light coming into the world, but there was darkness. More tragically even, St. John tells us he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. So the image is of Jesus coming to his own house, his own family, a family that he created, that he sustains in existence, and they reject him. Now this reality of opposition, of sin, of rejection, is a very, very important part of us understanding the story of Jesus' life and appreciating who he is. And this may sound kind of like a, a vague theological introduction, but I intend it to be a way of helping us understand what we want to consider today and to pray about, which is something maybe you've never prayed about before, which is Jesus' anger. Maybe it's a curious thing to think to pray about. But if you read the Gospels, if you read them through, what you'll notice is that not just once or twice, but several times, Jesus gets angry. And we need to understand that. We can't just airbrush it out of our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means for us to love him and to entrust our lives to him. We can't just kind of brush it under the rug or just kind of hurry past those bits of the gospel and get on to the nicer bits that we happen to enjoy and make us feel better. 
Now, I say this is a very hard thing to understand because it's very easy to get it wrong, what we mean when we say that Jesus gets angry. But if we understand the background, that, that anger is kind of a certain reaction to love meeting opposition can help us a little bit. Another thing that can help us understand uh, these scenes where Jesus gets angry, and I want us to actually focus on a particular scene. We'll enter into uh, uh, that scene in our prayer We're using our heart and our imagination as we normally do. But in order to help us understand it a little bit better, I think it's also helpful for us to consider what flattery is. Flattery. It's a word that, word that we don't often use. If you were to Google a definition of flattery, the uh, Wikipedia definition, which can serve us now for our prayer, is this. Excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. So flattery is insincere praise to get something. You know, schmoozing with somebody, buttering them up, trying to, you know, be very nice and all of this, but all the while what I'm saying and my complimenting, I'm being nice, isn't really sincere, and it's actually self-interested. In this sense, flattery is a very, very horrible distortion of love. Because love involves saying true and wonderful things. Well, it's precisely his love is true. Saying wonderful things about a person. It does involve praise. But if it's love, it's to speak the truth and therefore to build that person up. The horrible thing is, is that flattery on the outside might look a lot like love. May even feel like it too. But the effects of it are very, very different. Now, throughout Western civilization, and I'm just less familiar with others, but uh, both in literature and philosophy, flattery has always been singled out as a very, very particular danger. Shakespeare, in particular, and a lot of his plays talks a lot about flattery. And there's a lot of different images he uses to describe it, but one of the images that's very common that he uses, especially in his, his history plays, is to compare flattery to poison. You know, this, this ability to take poison and maybe put it in a liqueur in such a way that that liqueur or the wine or whatever it is that the person who's being poisoned might drink it and it may, might actually taste great. They won't notice anything. It's wonderful. It's very pleasing. But the effects are death. No external wounds, no visible violence, but the same effect as being knifed or, you know, beaten or whatever the thing, the way of killing might have taken place. And for Shakespeare and for so many other thinkers, the reason that flattery is so dangerous is because we like it. We're very vulnerable to it. And that vulnerability is because we like people who say nice things about us. People who make us feel good. Who don't make us feel uncomfortable. Who don't challenge us. 
people who are in that sense very pleasant and very encouraging and you know we just kind of like yeah you know i feel more intelligent more beautiful more special more admired all of these sorts of things we all of us are very very susceptible to that and that's why it can work like poison because if it's flattery if it's insincere and if it's given out of self-interest then it's not going to be help something that helps us understand the truth about ourselves it's not going to be something to help us grow. It's not going to be something that builds us up and makes us better people. In other words, it's not going to do what love does. It's going to be a caricature of love. It's going to harm us and it's expression of selfishness and self-interest on the part of the other person. Now, I say all of this because as we kind of turn now to contemplate the gospel scene, I, I want us to contemplate it, thinking of it in these terms. Jesus is the exact opposite of a flatterer. When Jesus looks at you and at me, when he speaks to us and now as he's present to us in our prayer, he loves us beyond our wildest imaginings. He reaches out to us with mercy, tenderness, and care. But he is not a flatterer. He doesn't just want to hear us what we want to hear. He wants us to hear what we need to hear. Because he loves us. Because he actually wants us to become the people that he's created us to be, which involves our flourishing, our happiness our peace. So let's turn to Mark's Gospel. And it's a scene in which Jesus, as he characteristically does when he gets to Capernaum, he entered the synagogue and he was there and it was, they were used to seeing him there, teaching and maybe expounding on a reading from one of the prophets. A number of the Pharisees and scribes were in anticipation of having Jesus there. They had heard the stories and maybe even seen some of his healings and his miracles. They knew that his popularity was spreading fast. A lot of people were flocking to see him. There was a lot of anticipation to see what Jesus was going to do. And he came into the synagogue on a Sabbath, a day that the Pharisees in particular had very, very strict rules and expectations of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath in order to be united to God. So St. Mark tells us that he entered the synagogue and there was a man who had a withered hand. It's kind of a strange thing. I've never personally met someone with a withered hand. I've never, but basically, what we could see from the, the exegesis of the passage, it was someone whose hand was perhaps contorted or deformed in such a way that he couldn't use it. So in other words, probably as a manual laborer, he wouldn't have been able to work as much as he would have liked, would have been an obstacle for him to provide for his family, to be involved in the life of the community, it was an objective obstacle. Now this man whose hand was, was deformed and impaired in this way, he was just in the crowd. He was there. And St. Mark tells us they watched Jesus to see whether he would cure this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Jesus. So suspicion, talk about lack of sincerity, 
all of that waiting. It was just this expectation. You just imagine in a very small space, because the synagogue in Kafarnim, you can see the, the remains of its foundation today if you go to Israel. You can see it in the archaeological remains. A very small place. Gathered around the tension, the expectation. This poor man with his hand is there. Who doesn't say anything, by the way. But Jesus takes the initiative. He said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Calls him out of the crowd. So you see this man step forward, probably feeling a little bit awkward and nervous, looking sideways to see should he or what should he do or what would the others say or think, but he steps forward. And then the Pharisees and everyone else know he's going to do it. He's going to heal on the Sabbath. And we know according to our rules and regulations that you're not supposed to do that. That's not the right thing to do. And they're waiting for what's going to happen. Then Jesus said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? Quite a question, right? Jesus turning around looking at, you know, on the Sabbath today, is, is, it, is it okay to do good? On this holy day, should we do good? Should we save life or not? So, obviously, I mean, imagine none of the Pharisees who say, no, we shouldn't do good. <laughs> we shouldn't save life. He puts them against the wall. And he sees when they're silent that they're, they're, they're not agreeing with him, they're not listening. And then St. Mark says, he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. The Pharisees then went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, let, let's leave aside the reaction of the Pharisees and let's just go to the action of Jesus. Jesus calling this man forward, almost in a sense provoking the confrontation. Knowing that they're going to judge him, that they're going to misunderstand him. Jesus tells them the truth. He confronts them with the truth. And here we can see in this action how Jesus is the exact opposite of a flatterer. And, you know, imagine if Jesus, you know, if he was a flatterer, one of the things that he would have been most interested in would be admiration and popularity. For the opinion makers and the people who mattered in the town to have a good opinion of him, to support him, to encourage him. In our culture today, we are very alive to popularity, to admiration, to status. Social media has made every single one of us potential superstars. You know, something, anything that we do could go viral, you know, at some point. And maybe we could have our little 15 minutes of fame, you know, appearing on something trending in YouTube or whatever it may be, right? The, the value of admiration and popularity. And in that context, leaving aside the extreme example I've just given, but you know, just think, if Jesus was insincere, were he a flatterer, it would have been very easy for him to ignore this man 
with the hand, you know? You know, put ourselves in that position. We know that people are going to have a bad reaction. We know that this will lead to opposition, that they won't understand. How easy it would have been for Jesus to just have acted as if he didn't see the man with the withered hand. Especially since the man wasn't asking for anything openly. But Jesus doesn't need their admiration. He doesn't care about their approval. And as I say that, I invite you and myself as well to simply contemplate and admire the beauty of Jesus' freedom. The beauty of not relying on the esteem and opinion of others. And we want to contemplate that beauty because we recognize how much it affects us. How many times I've stayed silent when maybe I should have spoken. How many times I've acted in a way that maybe really doesn't correspond to my own values and ideals. Not because I wanted to, not because I was freely acting out on the basis of who I am and what I believe in, but because that's what everyone else was doing. It's what was expected of me. It's what was going on around me. I didn't want to be weird. I didn't want to stick out. I didn't want to be strange. Time and time again, in large things and in small things, you and I feel the very real pull and tug, indeed, the chains of approval and admiration. Sometimes it's enough for people to just give us a glance and our imagination runs off and we imagine all sorts of disasters if we don't do what's expected of us. And feeling that and acknowledging that reality to then turn to see Jesus in the middle of that synagogue with all of those people, that darkness, that rejection, that family that he's walked into and he loves them. He's going to give his life for every single one of them, but he doesn't need their approval. He's free. And then Jesus' anger. He looks at them with anger. But St. Mark tells us very clearly the source of that anger. And this is what we need to try to understand. This is what we want to pray about. Jesus' anger is connected. It's, it's a response to their hardness of heart. Mark says it very clearly. He says he, was grie- he, he looked at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. Okay? Grieves mean it caused him pain. It pierced his heart to see how close they were, their coldness, their unwillingness to open themselves up to what God was actually doing because they already had established in their minds what God should be doing, how things should be, what was right and what was wrong. And that closeness, that hardness of heart, that's what pains Jesus. Why does it pain him? Why does it grieve him? Because he loves them. In other words, and this is why we can pray about even Jesus' anger. Jesus' anger is part of his love for you and for me. It's part of his love for those Pharisees. It's part of his self-giving to us. It's not just, you know, Jesus, his love isn't just Pollyannish, 
rose-colored glasses, just kind of looking at everyone and saying, oh, you are closed and hard-hearted and you look at me with hatred? Oh, isn't that cute and wonderful? His love isn't silly in that sense. He responds to that rejection energetically, passionately. In other words, with a human heart. His his anger is part of his love. And what he's responding to and what he's reacting to, and where this comes, I'll come back to this point of the anger, but just we move on to the Pharisees and this hardness of heart. Jesus brings to the surface what pains him. And what pains him is this unwillingness to be open to what God was actually doing in front of him, what God was actually wanting to do. Now, for you and I, you know, we think about the Sabbath and can you heal on the Sabbath or can you eat this or that on the Sabbath? It, it really, that I think, normally leaves us pretty indifferent. You know, I mean, it's just a non-issue for us. Dietary laws and, you know, washing your hands and all that sort of stuff. I, I doubt any of us here have ever had scruples or lost any sleep about, you know, those sorts of things. It's just, so it's, it, it may be in that sense it might be hard to relate to. But we can relate to this hardness of heart. Think about it in these terms. Think about the people you live with. Think about your family members, friendships, relationships. And just ask yourself, do I make allowances for differences? Differences in personality, differences in ways of approaching things when I'm working with someone on a team. The way that, that someone might have a different sense of humor, that she might have a different way of looking at something. Do I make allowances for that? Or do I have pretty demanding expectations of how that person should be? Well, she shouldn't be like that. Well, she shouldn't say that. She should have known better. She shouldn't do this. This other thing shouldn't happen. In a certain sense, like the Pharisees, in our relationship with other people, we can have very specific and demanding expectations of how things should be. And when they're not that way, ooh, look out. We're going to judge. We're going to criticize. We're going to let other people know of how that things aren't as they should be. And we will separate ourselves, maybe, distance ourselves, a hardness and a closing of the heart. And this is part of what grieves Jesus. This is what pains him. And you know, the Pharisees who were there, they weren't kind of, you know, wicked, horribly diabolical, evil people, you know? in some sort of comic book sense. They had a very strong sense of justice. They were right. What Jesus was doing is wrong. And so they felt very, very justified in opposing him and criticizing him. But that sense of being justified came from their hardness of heart. And how many times when I lose my temper with someone, 
when I'm really annoyed with that person, how many times do I feel justified? You know, right is on my side. They shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't be this way. They need to learn. This has to change. But maybe now in our prayer, what we need to recognize is that maybe instead of worrying about how to be right, we should be a little bit more concerned about how to actually do good. How to build up the lives of other people. Because that's Jesus' question to the Pharisees. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath? Is it right to save a life? You know, put aside your small-minded expectations of how you think things should be or shouldn't be. Is it okay to do good, to build up? And maybe instead of us getting upset about how this person was inconsiderate, how they should have known better, how they were out of place, how this other thing happened, this lack of understanding, maybe instead of us feeling justified in separating ourselves from that person or ridiculing that person, we need to turn around and say, well, even if he or she is that way, can I still do good? Because maybe God is there in the life of that person. In fact, he is. Jesus himself said, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done unto me. And that's why I'm not justified in writing this person off, categorizing them, feeling justified that I can avoid them and be harsh with them. And in all of these sorts of things, please don't think that I'm just trying to give all of this exhortation to just be nice, you know? <laughs> I think there's nothing more annoying than just, you know, kind of feel that we have to be nice, you know, because life is messy and, you know, it's, it's real, you know? And being nice is kind of a, a kindergarten virtue. But we do need to love the reality of people who are around us. And sometimes that reality is that people who are different, they're challenging, it can be hard for us. And then to love them means that we make allowances for them we understand them and we understand and believe that Christ is there and that in trying to love that person, ultimately, I'm loving Christ. I want to come back to two final points about Jesus and anger, which I think can be helpful for us in trying to relate to him and grow in our friendship with him. And the first is this. Jesus' anger does not cause him to withdraw his affection, his love. When Jesus looked around at those Pharisees with anger, he wasn't writing them off. He wasn't looking at them and saying, you know what, I'm not here to save you guys anymore. Forget it, you blew your chance. Don't care about you guys anymore. May sound kind of silly to even say that, but the fact is, is that normally in our experience of anger, that's kind of what's involved. When I get angry with someone, or if someone gets angry with me, silent treatment ensues. <laughs> There's distance. You know? Oh, you, you, know, you lost people. Well, now you're going to find out I'm not going to talk to you. Things go silent. There's this awkwardness. There's this apprehension, there's this fear, this coldness. And therefore, since that's normally our experience, when we see Jesus get angry, maybe that does unsettle us a little bit. And we might say, well, maybe, maybe he's angry with me. 
And that kind of puts a question mark over all of the other things that we consider in the life of Jesus, of his, of his love, of his self-giving, what he does on the cross, his tenderness, his closeness. But it shouldn't. Because Jesus never, ever withdraws his affection, his love. He doesn't pull back. Jesus is always and everywhere the God who takes the first step, who seeks us out. One of the worst and cruelest things that a parent can do with a child is to withdraw affection. To punish a child by being angry with her and withdrawing, you know? Oh, well, now you've been bad. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to make you suffer a little bit by withdrawing. And if we've ever experienced that, whether it was when we were growing up or whether in other relationships or friendships, we need to just realize that that has absolutely no application whatsoever to our relationship with Jesus. He doesn't flatter us. When he sees hardness of heart in us, when he sees our attachment to the things that separate us from him, he doesn't look at us and say, oh, isn't that cute? He wants to get rid of it. He wants to take it away, but he wants to do that because he loves us so much, because it grieves him. And he's gonna do it patiently with understanding. He's going to do it mercifully. I think it's very important for us to see Jesus in this way so that his love of us can be believable. You know? Because if we look at, when we say that Jesus loves me and he, he has mercy towards me, and if I think that that means that you know, he loves me as you know, kind of whether I react or respond, he just doesn't care, well, what kind of love is that? It's a bit strange, isn't it? Because we've all realized that, you know, part of the you know, relations we have with people that we love, people that we care about, you know, when we do something that upsets them, when we do something that hurts that relationship, it matters, right? Maybe there is anger. Maybe there is a reaction. Well, with Jesus, we need to understand that when we separate ourselves from him, when we whether it's through sin or whether it's through our attitude or whether it's just through indifference and forgetfulness. He doesn't just react to it, you know, kind of as, you know, this oblivious, who cares kind of attitude. He reacts to it energetically. He seeks us out even more. He doesn't withdraw. So, Considering all of that, and I hope just as the end result of our meditation this evening, can be simply that as we read all of Jesus' life, all the different moments of it, where he, whether it's the moment where he's welcoming the little children and he's blessing them, whether it's his sensitivity and tenderness as he forgives the woman caught in adultery, whether it's his absolute generosity on the cross, or when it's his anger with the Pharisees, his chastising them as hypocrites, his calling Herod out and rebuking him publicly, that every single one of those moments we can, in our prayer, see and discern, that's God's love coming for me. All of it, in all of its facets. 
and therefore trust in Jesus and trust in him a little bit more because as we've been considering this evening, not only does he offer me mercy, he also offers me the truth. He's not a flatterer. He's here to save me and to heal me. And that's a love I can rely on. That's a love I can lean on. That's the love that I want to accept. And let's ask Mary, our mother, who wraps us in this warm maternal love, but just like her son, she does it so that we can walk in the clear light of the truth, that we can be freed from flattery and self-deception and just trying to make ourselves feel good and just get by without being bothered in life. She wants us to feel the freedom of walking in the light of her son's truth. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.